is a really special Sunday. Normally, um, John Jay is always up here giving the sermon. This week, he is celebrating his anniversary with Corey. Woohoo! We're going to pretend he's not sitting there, but John Jay, how many years? 17. That's amazing. Woo! <laughs> Um, every now and then, John Jay um, asks someone to come in and speak for us in his stead. And this week, we are happy to welcome the Reverend Dr. Dr. Ken Fong, who has been the pastor, retired pastor of Evergreen Baptist Church, longtime pastor there. Um, he's also been a um, professor and a presence at Fuller Seminary. He's done a lot of thinking in terms of Asian Americans and their specific cultural and spiritual needs. Um, if you go on Facebook, he's very prolific on Facebook. It feels like every time I log in, there's something about his two adorable corgis, um, as well as his family, as well as all the wonderful work that he does with his po- podcast, highlighting some of the really cool things about the Asian American community and their cultural contributions. We are so happy that Ken and Sharon have been part of our congregation for the past year, and we look forward to what you have to share with us today. It's uh, a, a small finger, a, a worm, like a, a dagger, uh, tiny sword, breadstick, bread breadstick, a lamppost, um, coin slot. No. no. Ten uh, seconds. A stick. Uh, a walking stick. A boundary. Sorry. It's a tandem bicycle. What? <laughs> That's like my favorite commercial of all time. You don't want to sloth on your team when you're playing Pictionary, right? So when I was uh, asked to uh, preach on this subject, uh, I said, somehow I've got to work that commercial in, even though it actually takes you in a different direction than what the sermon is going to take you. So uh, It does raise the question, what's so deadly about slothfulness? Uh, when we look at the whole list of the seven deadly sins, uh, this seems like the most innocuous of all of them at first glance. Um, a little bit of the background, if you've not been with us every week, uh, back in the 6th century, Pope Gregory the Great uh, was working with his team and said, you know, there are some fundamental sins, even vices, like baseline sins that seem to be the, the root of all the other sins. So especially for those uh, men who are in our monasteries, uh, they in particular really need to focus on keeping these seven deadly sins out of their lives because this is what's going to lead them away from God. And so that's a big question though. It's like how did sloth make this list? Uh, if you look at, if you look at, um, the other six, envy, gluttony, greed, lust, pride, wrath, these are clearly sins of commission. These are things that we do. Right. And by doing them, it leads to other sins. But sloth, on the other hand, is the one on the list that is not a sin of commission. It's a sin of omission. It's something we don't do. And it actually leads to other sins, which is kind of intriguing in and of itself. So the question is, is it, is it a sin to be slow? Right. Because that's that's what the the whole commercial was all about is you don't want to sloth on your team because they're just too dang slow. I mean, 
was that the seat post of the tandem bicycle? I, I don't know. We're, like, we're never going to get there, right? Um, but that's actually not the case. I actually want to share with you the text message I got from John Jay to invite me to preach. He said, hey, would you be interested in preaching on sloth on March 8th? You seem like the least slothy guy I know. Now, I don't know that slothy is an adjective for real, but I, I got it. And this was my actual reply. I said, okay, March 8th, onslaught, but compared to my wife, I'm actually lazy. Okay, and if you know my wife Snoopy, you know what I'm talking about. So, we're not talking about slow. When he said, you're the least slothy guy I know, I didn't think he was saying, you're not slow. Okay, the implication was, you're not lazy. And I think for a lot of us, that's our kind of predisposition to thinking, oh, I know what the sin of sloth is. It's being lazy. In fact, I actually talked to some of you a couple of weeks ago uh, when you found out I was going to be preaching on this and you kind of said, oh man, I'm going to get it that Sunday because I have trouble with sloth. Okay. So is it about being lazy? Okay. And uh, I want to tell you that that's a huge misunderstanding of what this is all about. Um, uh, I, and so this is not going to be a sermon on, hey, you know, let's step it up, okay? So let's go into the Greek. The word Acadia, is that how you say it? Sure. Okay, I'll just say that. The Greek is the Greek word for sloth, and it simply means, when you break it down, the absence of care, okay? And what does that mean? Well, absence of care in our language could be characterized as apathy or indifference, negligence, maybe complacence. But for our purposes, and I think based on the the root meaning of, of this word that I understand, I think indifference really gets at the core. Because it seems like it's the... The other ones still seem to have kind of a more of a negative tinge. And indifference almost seems neutral until you really understand what we're talking about here. Now... Um, Seven centuries after Pope Gregory the Great talked about this, St. Thomas Aquinas was actually talking about why sloth is still on this list. And he says, it's the sorrow for spiritual good. And what he means by that is when we shun spiritual good as too much bother, like I know I could be doing better in my spiritual life, but why? It's just, that's the indifference, right? It's like, it's not really going to matter. I'm kind of okay the way I am. So our, our main text today is probably uh, a book in the Bible that you haven't heard preached on very much. It's one of the minor prophets, Zephaniah, uh, chapter 1, verse 12. And this, this is a very short book by the prophet who's basically, in the first chapter, warning the, the Jewish people in the region of Judah, and specifically in Jerusalem, that they had become too indifferent about their spiritual life with God. So the Good News translation says this. I will search with lanterns in Jerusalem's darkest corner to find and punish those who sit contented in their sins, indifferent to God, thinking he will leave them alone. So so essentially he's saying your indifference is so serious now that you've kind of, even though you still consider yourself people who believe in God, you actually don't think God's that involved in our lives anymore. And so it really doesn't matter how we behave, how we think, um, all, all these kind of things. It's just because God's not around. God's this distant God. There's another translation that I like uh, from The Voice. 
that gets a little bit more into the literalness. He says, on that day, the prophet, I will personally search and illumine every dark corner of Jerusalem. I will wipe out everyone who has numbed his senses with the dregs of his own wine. And says, the eternal will do nothing in our lives, help, neither helping us nor hurting us. When I was looking at the NIV translation, it was a little more confusing. It's like those who have shaken their wine. It's like, what does that mean? Right. So then I, I kind of was digging around and it's like, hmm, has numbed his senses with the dregs of his own wine. How many of you are wine drinkers? OK, so I don't for whatever reason. I just don't like taste of alcohol. So this is news to me. But apparently red wine in particular can have a sediment. Is that true? OK, so if you're a winemaker and you're making red wine, you have to be careful of the accumulation of the dregs of these sediments because periodically you need to drain off the liquid and put it into a new vessel and leave the sediments behind. Does that make sense? Okay. And so he says, so here's, he's, he's using a, an analogy that these people in Jerusalem would understand because they drink this wine. And he's like, you wouldn't do that, but that's kind of the content of your life now. You don't care about the sediments. You don't care about the dregs in your life. And it's just like, that's problematic. Okay. And there needs to be, even though you still believe in God, right? Even though you still believe in God, you actually operate as if God isn't very concerned about your life. Now, does that ring any bells? Do you ever kind of catch yourself kind of being indifferent about the state of your relationship with God, your, your spiritual life? And it's just like, yeah, you know, I know I could be doing this more or this less, but does it really matter? That's what we're talking about here. And we become complacent and spiritually apathetic and maybe indifferent. I, and I think this is a, and you'll see in a moment, you'll see that this is a rising, growing problem, especially in this country. And so what, what the prophet is essentially goading uh, these, these uh, readers of his prophecy, he's saying, so just like the winemaker understands, periodically you better check the quality of your life. And you may need to revessel it. Right? You may need to renew it. You may need to, or to use another analogy, you may need to rekindle the passion that has grown cold in your relationship with God. Now, when we typically start off, uh, those of us who are Christians, our relationship with God, we typically start off with passion and um, energy. Okay, let me go back one. Uh, oops, I'm getting ahead of myself. Oh, go the other way. There. I should turn behind. Uh, I'm going the wrong way. There. Oh. There we are. Okay. I'm trying not to turn around. Is there, is there a reason why I don't see it on the screen back here? There. Okay. See, I'm flying blind. Indifference. I'm telling you, it's more serious than we think. So I wanted to look at the greatest commandment because this really sums up what it means to be in a relationship with God. And it's about love, right? This unbridled, passionate love. So Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Love him with all your mind. All, all, all consuming, right? Nothing lukewarm about this. This is the first and most important commandment. And then the second is basically saying it's the same as the first, except since God's invisible and less tangible... You love God in an all-consuming way when you love every neighbor the same way you love yourself. 
Okay, so there's this whole sense of, I don't think very many people, when they start off being Christians, go, ah, oh, you know, it could have been different about this. It's like, no, I'm all in. It's like, wow, God loves me so much, I'm going to love God back. And so that's where we get this sense of, it's 100%. It's not 75%. It's not 25%. But over time, like most relationships, we tend to meander towards indifference. The flame gets weaker and weaker, and sometimes the flame even goes out. And believe it or not, people can be pastors, people can be missionaries, people can work for Christian organizations, people can be deacons in their churches and have a pretty cold match. This was happening in Jesus' time, where he had all these very religious, righteous people, very involved, right? Notable, identified as the religious leaders and spokespeople in their crowd. And yet, Jesus would tell them, you are so far from me. What's going on here? There's an old saying, time and tides wait for no man. You're probably familiar with that, some of you. Uh, Just to kind of alter that, I would say, time and tides affect every relationship. Uh, During the decades that I was a pastor... I would do premarital counseling, and we would come time to talk about the marriage covenant. And one of the ways that we talk about marriage is tying the knot, right? So Jason, our drummer, just tied the knot, yeah. And I hear Jack and Barbara are looking forward to tying the knot, right? And uh, there's probably a lot of us that have tied the knot. But I would tell the couple who's planning to tie the knot, I'd say, don't assume that the knot's going to stay tight. Because time and tides lift the boat and lower the boat. Lift the boat and lower the boat. And even though you may have started with your boat tied closely to the dock, if you're not careful, time and tides will cause a drift in the relationship. I said divorce doesn't just happen out of nowhere. Divorce happens because the people involved in the relationship have not been paying attention to the distance between them. Right. And the growth of indifference. You following me? And, and so it's kind of going back to the winemaker point of saying, hey, you know, what? don't just assume you can just leave the wine in the barrel. You've got to check it because there's a buildup of sediment of dregs. And periodically you need to re vessel that wine if it's going to stay good. So I would say that relational drift, even in our relationship with God. There's time and tides, right? It's what leads to the deadly sin of sloth, of being indifferent. Okay? Because no relationship starts off indifferent, but over time, it can drift to that. So I just put up some examples. Uh, What do we want to start here? We already talked about marriage. Uh, You know, I've performed so many weddings, and uh, I can tell you, The energy, the passion, the commitment that the couple has on their wedding day, uh, it's it's real, okay? And then years later, and sometimes not too many years later, that same couple is only talking through lawyers. Okay? Again, that doesn't happen overnight. A kid comes into a family, okay? Like... Everyone gathers around, the older siblings, the parents, they're like, you are the focus of our life. We will give our lives for you. Okay, six years later... Like, what? (laughs) Again? Why can't you do your own homework? Right? And it's very easy for that to happen. 
Uh, how many pets when they come as these little bundles of furriness, right? It's like, oh, we love you so much. Like, we're going to play with you until you're tired and then have to fall asleep. And then later, like, who's going to feed the dog? Well, it's not my job. Well, it's, uh, no, it's your job. I did it last time. See, this happens. Now, in, in Asian American culture, I mean, it was just my family. Uh, there's not a lot of physical sh- signs of affection. Uh, and so, like, I don't remember really seeing my parents hold hands. Okay? I remember the first time uh, I was taking psych in college, and they were talking about all the signs of healthy you know, uh, relationship, and there's all this physicality, and I had to come to the conclusion my parents hate each other, right? And and I'm like, no, they they show it in different ways. It's not necessarily physical. But then, you know, being the person that I'm like, well, I'm going to improve on that. So when I get married, I'm going to actually be much more demonstrative, right? And so I dated. I, I started dating my wife. I remember when we were dating, I couldn't wait to the moment she let me hold her hand. Right? It's just like, oh, this is so good, right? This is so good. And then we get married. Now I'm walking five feet in front of her. <laughs> right? And, and it's like, is our daughter even seeing us hold hands? It's like weird, right? Um, last fall, my wife found out that um, her cancer had come back. She's asymptomatic, but that's not good news. And all of a sudden, the indifference that had crept into my relationship with my wife was staring me in the face. And now we're just walking to choir practice, and I want to hold her hand. You know what I'm talking about? It's just like, it's so easy for this distance to come into place, and it changes the relationship. And you have to kind of fight your way to get back to it. Indifference... It's the silent killer of relationships. Usually not talking about it. It just is. And it's a silent killer of relationships, especially when it involves our neighbors. So let's go beyond our family. Let's go beyond our children, our marriages, our pets. When the commandment that we were first passionate about was to love God by loving our neighbors as ourselves, And we become indifferent about that. I don't know if you've heard of the uh, late Nobel laureate, Elie Wiesel. He died in 2016. Um, I've seen this next picture so many times, and I didn't realize that that circled face is actually Wiesel in one of the Nazi death camps. He uh, gained a lot of credibility because of how much he and all those Jews suffered. And one of the things he's known for saying is, the opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Now imagine who's saying this. Imagine during the, the, the run-up to the United States joining the fight against the Axis powers, how many Jewish people were crying out for the world, the rest of the world, to be more than indifferent, to actually care about what was being done to them. But that's not the only example in this country's history of how indifference is the opposite of love. Uh, my wife is Japanese-American. Most of the people uh, that I pastored initially at uh, Evergreen Baptist Church are Japanese-Americans. When I would do a funeral, no matter how this person ended up at the end of their life, pretty much during the 40s, they were in one of those camps. 
And as a non-Japanese American person, it was very easy until I married a Japanese American and started pastoring a historically Japanese American church. It was very easy for me to be indifferent about that injustice in the history of this country. I, I remember we uh, were going to East West Players Theater one season where every play was about the relocation of the concentration camps, okay, the prison camps. And probably the first four of the five plays, I sat there as a student and learning and everything, but it was the last play of the season, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. It's just like, I have grafted into this history through my marriage choice and by who I've been called to pastor, and now I'm feeling the pain. I'm upset, right? And my indifference was disappearing. There's things today even more pressing. There are families separated at our borders. There are refugees seeking asylum. And it doesn't directly affect a lot of us. And so it's so easy for us to be indifferent. And yet that is what is so, so dangerous. Elie Wiesel also said, indifference to me is the epitome of all evil. Are we starting to better appreciate how sloth has remained on this list of seven deadly sins. Are we starting to appreciate that it's not about being lazy? It's about being indifferent about relationships. And I want to tell you, indifference to God and the gospel is also a growing problem today. I want to show you a couple of charts. Uh, this is a very disturbing chart, if you can see it. It's the accelerating growth of the religiously unaffiliated from 1972 until 2018, just a couple of years ago. And if you look, uh, in 1990, there's the first drop, and then it just skyrockets. By um, the mid-90s, it doubles, and by uh, 2012, it triples. Till today, this is the highest percentage of people polled in America who say they have no religious affiliation. They're agnostic. They're atheist. Um, they're not even some other religion other than Christianity. They simply don't care. Now, if you're a thoughtful person, you're saying, what happened in 1990 that actually caused that first dip? I'll tell you. Uh, Christian Smith, who's a uh, University of Notre Dame uh, sociologist, and uh, Christian, he said there are at least three historical events that culminated in 1990 that has led to this growing rise of religious indifference. Number one is like um, for about 20, 25 years since the 1970s, the religious right began to get involved in GOP politics. And by the 90s, that was when we had a lot of those televangelist scandals and stuff. And so he says... Uh, all of that kind of getting in bed with politics for power and, and, and all of that, it caused many young liberals and moderates to say, you know what, I can't trust re religious people. Okay? And that has not dissipated today. Number two, this was surprising to me. It was the end of the Cold War. Okay? Some of us are old enough to remember the Cold War. Where the, it was in the Soviet Union and the United States were having this nuclear missile kind of race to mutual destruction. Okay? And, and uh, the Soviet Union was characterized as the epitome of atheism. 
So if you were an atheist or even an agnostic in the United States during the Cold War, you would be really reticent to say you were publicly because now you look like you're a communist sympathizer. But with the ending of the Cold War, it kind of now gave atheists and agnostics more freedom to just say, oh, yeah, I'm still a loyal, patriotic American. I just happen to believe in God the way you say. Okay. And the third one you could probably guess was 9-11. And this, even though this was conducted by radical uh, Islamic terrorists, it just was another uh, straw that broke this camel's back. That's basically saying, this is what happens when people are religiously fanatics. Now, this is a generational problem. And I'm guessing if you have children or grandchildren, you're already seeing this trend. The, the uh, chart starts off... 80 plus on the right side, where 8% of the people are religiously unaffiliated. But by the time you get to 18 to 29 years old, it's almost 40%. There, there are children at Pasadena Christian Middle School, right? And, and Christian high schools. And my daughter's up at Seattle Pacific University. There, there are children and young people there that don't identify as Christians anymore. Or at least, if they identify as Christians, they'll say, well, I believe in Jesus still, and I like the gospel, but you can keep the church and your denominations and all this kind of stuff, because that sucks big time. Now, it's too easy to write these people off as saying, well, they just don't care about anything. Uh, this young generation is hugely concerned about the environment. It's their future. Right? They're, they're concerned about social injustices. They're concerned about all these kind of things. The problem is... They don't see the church being more than indifferent. This is a quote that I found from President Mark Laberton, one of my friends over at Fuller Theological Seminary a couple blocks away. He said, the church is in one of its deepest moments of crisis, not because of some election result or not, but because of what has been exposed to be the poverty of the American church in its capacity to be able to see and love and serve and engage in ways in which we simply fail to do. And that vocation is the vocation that must be recovered and must be made real in tangible action. What President Laverton is calling the poverty of the American church, I would say it's the indifference of the American church. Like we're more concerned about building buildings. We're more concerned about having a cool, you know, children's area and all these kind of stuff. And this generation of young people and probably their children are saying, wrong. That's, that's not how I read the Bible. That's not the teachings of Jesus. That's not what would get me to join this thing because that thing that you have, that's, that's institutionalized. That's religiosity. I actually want a relationship with Jesus that connects me to God and God's heart and to actually be a change agent in the world. I think uh, right now what we're facing with this uh, coronavirus is really an opportunity, first of all, for people everywhere to not be indifferent. You cannot be indifferent about this growing epidemic. Uh, you need to be washing your hands, right? You need to be, um, you know, listening to what the public health people are saying. You can't if it, to be indifferent at this particular time where it affects everybody is to actually help the virus spread. 
But as I've been listening to a lot of the reports and kind of the things that have already taken place in some cities and, and countries, I was like, okay, we're going to shut all the schools or we're going to encourage people to work from home. I'm thinking about the class differences that make that hard, if not impossible for some people. Okay. What, what about the people who don't have paid sick leave kind of jobs? How, how do they just stay home? How, what if they, what if they're a janitor at, at, at some big, you know, building? They can't do their job from home. Okay. What if the schools close and they can't afford childcare? It, it's like, who's gonna do this? Or then they're gonna rely upon their elderly parents, which is the most susceptible demographic to catching the virus. And the kids can possibly be asymptomatic carriers of, right? I and mean, you just think about all these kind of things. What about the people at the border? Who are living in decrepit conditions. How are those people not going to be breeding grounds for this virus? We cannot, as as the people of God, we cannot simply be indifferent to the greater consequences and ramifications of the crisis that is now in everybody's mind. Now this is the point in the sermon where I would typically, in the old school way... Now point a finger at all of you and say, shape up! (laughs) Try harder! Right? God's not happy with you. He's got that searchlight and he's looking around. Right? Very easy to do. The problem is, sloth is not a problem of laziness. Sloth is indifference to relationship. How do you remedy a relationship that has grown cold? And distant. You know, I thought, I think back sometimes to some of the advice I gave in my younger days as a pastor and this couple starting to grow apart. And I would say to the husband, well, did you ask your wife, like, what she wants you to do more? He's like, yeah, she wants to have a date night on a more regular basis. Okay. Then the, the rookie me would go, okay, then do that. Okay. So they would go out and they have two or three dates. And then I'd come back to meet with them again. And I would say, so is it better? And uh, the husband goes, well, I, I did what she asked, but it doesn't seem better. Okay? And then I asked the wife, I go, well, he did what you asked. Why doesn't it seem better? He's like, because the whole time he's sitting there, I can tell he doesn't want to be with me. This is before smartphones. This is before every restaurant you go to has the game on, on a flat screen, where he's looking over your shoulder, right? None of that. It's just like, I'm here, aren't I? I'm trying harder. See, that doesn't work when there's a problem of distance in the relationship. What's necessary is to actually find the love that compels you to want to be together. And the answer to that, especially spiritually, is to be reminded That although we have a problem of growing distance with time and tides, even in our relationship with God and with our neighbors, God doesn't have that problem. God is never indifferent. God does not suffer from any sin, let alone the sin of slothfulness. God will always protect. God will always trust. God will always hope, always persevere. God will never fail. Doesn't sound like 1 Corinthians 13. God will never drift away. God's not will never get loose when it comes to any of us. And God's passion will never grow cold. I'm going to tell you that if you 
are inspired this week to read the, the whole book of Zephaniah. It's only three chapters, so you'll feel very accomplished. <laughs> I read a whole book of the Bible this week, okay? You read the third chapter, and even though it starts with this harsh judgment upon the indifferent people, it ends with a great note of hopefulness that that when you show that you have this desire for God, God will not punish you. God will not do the things that he is capable of doing. And so our inspiration, even for loving our neighbors, has to be the inspiration of God's love for us. In fact, um, looking at 1 John 4.16 this week, I saw it kind of with different eyes and heard it with different ears. I'm going to read it first and I'm going to have you read it after me. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us, not we have for God. All right, that's the try harder part. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. All right, let's read that together. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So God's a starting point of rekindling the flame, of warming up the relationship, of bringing the distance to a smaller place, to bring intimacy once again. And this whole Lenten period is, is to kind of recognize where we are deficient. Right? And yet God in Christ has actually demonstrated for us that his love, his ardor, is constant, is unconditional and consistent. And so we have to rely on knowing and experiencing that love. And out of that, will come this natural motivation to love others in the way that we are loved by God. Indifference always finds an excuse, but love will always find a way. There's no greater demonstration of that than God sending Jesus to be our one and only Savior. Um, The sacrifice that he has made inspires us to make sacrifices. Uh, I have no idea um, what's coming with this whole growing pandemic. Uh, I know I just texted my daughter this morning that Pasadena has just declared a state of emergency. doesn't mean that there's any uh, cases of the virus yet, but I think it gives the city uh, the permission to shut down public gatherings, including worship services, if they need to, like what's happening uh, in the state of Washington. My daughter right now is laser-focused on the BTS concert at the Rose Bowl in May. She is not indifferent. She is in denial. Okay? And uh, I told her yesterday, they just canceled South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. Do you think a little concert with three shows at the, at the Rose Bowl? And she's like, don't say that. You're, you're, you know, I'm like, I'm just getting you ready. Okay? There are more important things than some of the things that really matter to us. It's relationships. And none more important than our relationship with God. And so, whether or not we get to keep gathering here every week, we'll we'll have to wait and see. Um, I just want to encourage each one of us that whether we can gather together in this space or not, or in our small groups or not, God is always gathered with us. And God will keep us together. Let's pray. God, we thank you that 
you are love, that you will always persevere, that you will always hope that you will never fail to love us. And so continue to be an amazing source of inspiration in our relationship with you and our capacity to love all of our neighbors, especially in the face of this growing crisis. Thank you in Jesus' name.